Bibles, go to uh, the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 22. Um, we're going to finish our study in the book of Joshua this morning. It's the sixth book in your Old Testament, sixth book from the beginning if you want to find it. And um, we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, and I'm going to try to be really efficient with it. But I want you to see um, how this uh, this book ends, the story ends, the story of Israel uh, being led into the promised land, actually getting to cross the Jordan River and go into the promised land. And we come, it's the end of, of one story, if you will, the end of one season, the beginning of another season. And seasons of life, that's how they work. I mean, some, when some end, others begin. Uh, Leslie and I, you know, our family, we're, we're right in the middle of this big season of life change um, in, in our home. Our youngest is about to graduate from high school and go off to college, which means we're, we're going to be empty nesters. I mean, like for real empty nesters. And one half of us is super excited about that. <laughs> the other half of us, it's going to take a minute for her to get used to, Right? In June, my oldest daughter's getting married. And so it's empty nesting, and we're going to have like a, a, like a son-in-law, and I, we don't know what to do about all that. We've never done any of these things before. Our parents are getting older, and we're feeling this next season of life, one season ending, another season coming. It's always been that way. I mean, we, we've never not gone through changes and seasons. I remember when we got married, that was a change in season. When our children were born, season changed. When they, you know, they went off to school for the first time, became teenagers, started to drive. It's been seasons of grief and joy and hardship. There have been seasons that were just boring. It's how it goes. This is the writer of Ecclesiastes. You know, Solomon, in all of his wisdom, tells us there is a time for every one of those seasons. And you might be this morning in the midst of a change of a season. In fact, very likely there is some wind of change that's in your Life. And so what do we do? How do we, how do we live through these season changes as people of God? And, and you know, a lot of us, you know, we, we might say we like change, even good change. We welcome it, and yet at the same time, we really, we struggle with it. And so chapter 22, chapter 23, and chapter 24. These are all responses, if you will, to the very end of, of chapter 21, what just came before it. At the very end, it, Joshua is declaring to Israel, God is faithful. He's been faithful. He's been so faithful to us. Everything that God promised us, he's done. Every single thing, not one thing that God has said failed. Everything he said has come to pass. And so in light of that, how do we live 
in light of the faithfulness of God. It's very much like if you were reading the book of Romans and, you know, you get through the first 11 chapters and they're just, they're breathtaking. In fact, chapter 11 of Romans ends with this breathtaking hymn. I mean, it's like there's no other way to end all of the things that Paul has been talking about that God has done except to end in a praise song, and that's the way he ends it. And yet that's not the end of the book. Chapter 12, verse 1, the very first word is, therefore, in light of everything that God has done, therefore. And then he gives a charge to us. In some ways, that's how these verses are. In light of everything God's done, this is how we are to live. Now, I want to pick up. We're going to start in chapter 22, verse 1. I'm going to read a little bit. I'll explain to it. I'll summarize some things so that we are able to get through all of this, but I want you to see the big picture this morning. Um, Chapter 22 of Joshua, verse 1, it says this, at that time Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now remember, these are the two and a half tribes that live on the east side of the Jordan, the, you know, what most Israelites would call the wrong side of the Jordan, all right? They live over there, but, but because of the deal they made with Moses about having that land, they have for the last seven years been fighting these wars to conquer the promised land. But now the war is over. The seven years of war is over. And so verse 2 and. And Joshua, he said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You you have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where you where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And so he blesses them and he sends them back to their tents and tells them when they get there, Uh, They need to divide up all that they've accumulated with their brothers. And um, so for the past seven years, side by side, they've been fighting along uh, with their brothers in arms. This would have been an emotional parting, you know, a special bond that they shared, this new hope rising for a new chapter in all their lives. They were to enjoy the rest that God had provided, the rest they'd been fighting for, and it was time to walk in it. And in many ways, you expect, well, this is great. We're about to get some vignettes of faithfulness, right? I mean, it's kind of what we expect in our own lives. Oh, this good thing's happened. It's come to an end. The the hardship's over. Uh, vignette after vignette of walking in faithfulness. That's what awaits us, right? Well, interestingly enough, 
uh, the very next verse introduces that within um, days of this parting and, and blessing and, uh, uh, you know, hugs and goodwill and, oh, you know, when you get over to the east side, come see my family and, you know, we'll meet you, all that stuff. Within days of this, we find ourselves on the brink of a civil war, if you can believe it. I call it the altar of misunderstanding, if you will. Look at the way that it says at verse 10 and 11, and, the, and when they came to the region of the Jordan, this is the, the people lived on the east side, people of Reuben and, and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. So they get there, They've either crossed the Jordan or about to cross the Jordan, and they decide, we're going to build an altar, a big, huge, massive, imposing altar. And somebody probably said, well, you know, there is the altar in Shiloh, the one and only altar that Israel is supposed to have. It's only one. One God, one altar. It's in Shiloh for all the nation. Somebody probably said, well, I don't, you know, I know we're going to build this altar, and I know we're not going to sacrifice anything on it and offer it. I mean, it's just going to be a, an altar, a, member, a remembrance. Uh, we, we find out later it's a, it's a symbol. It's meant a, to remind us that we're the people of God in case we're there over on the other side of the Jordan and somehow our children grow up and forget. But it seemed that nobody on the east side thought, well, this might be misunderstood. When we build our big, massive, huge, imposing altar. Verse 11, and the people of Israel, that means the people on the west side, heard it and said, behold, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Nine and a half tribes, going to go to war with two and a half tribes over a massive, huge altar. In October of 1962, some of you might have been around, it was the Cuban Missile Crisis. The world was on the brink of disaster. The United States had these spy planes, they picked up imagery of the Russians taking uh, nuclear uh, weapons to Cuba, America decides, well, we'll stop that. And they put a big blockade around Cuba, and it, it creates this huge, massive um, uh, standoff between the two superpowers of the world. Finally, they, they talk to each other. They work out an arrangement, but for 13 days, the world kind of held its breath What's interesting is the, the missile crisis at the end of those 13 days, it came to an end, but the arms race never came to an end, right? The crisis was averted. The, the arms race kept going. Well, there was this misunderstanding, and the intention of the Western tribes was that, hey, these guys are doing something that's wrong, and, and 
even though we're brothers and even though we have this bond and even though we hugged and cried and left each other and can't wait to meet each other's families and all those things, if these guys over here have sacrificed the holiness of God, then it is time to go to war against them. And their intention was spot on. Now, thankfully... In verse 13, what you find is they decide, well, maybe instead of just sending the armies and shooting first and asking questions later, we'll ask some questions first. So they send a delegation. They go over there to find out, hey, what is it that's going on? They send Phineas, who's a high, uh, Phinehas, who's a, uh, the high priest. They send some elders. They go over there. They approach the eastern tribes. And what they say is, how in the world could you possibly do this? This has all the signs of a rebellion. This is all the signs of you making up your own worship so you can worship your own gods. This has all the signs of you separating from the people of God. This is what they're saying. Verse 18 says, You must have turned away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he'll be angry with you and the whole congregation of Israel. We're all going to be in trouble for this. And look at verse 19. But now if the land of your possession's unclean, I mean, if something's wrong with the land, if the reason you built this altar is because something's wrong with your land, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle said, come over here to the west side. And take for yourselves a possession among us. We'll give you some of our land if that's the problem. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord your God. They, they end this confrontation and this investigation with... We're willing to pay the price. We're willing to do whatever we need to do to keep you from rebelling or turning away from the Lord. They put their money where their mouth is. They knew the cost of this kind of love. It's the kind of love that Jesus talked to his disciples about. He wanted them to understand. Well, fortunately, what happens is the east side Israel, they, they couldn't believe they were misunderstood. They, they couldn't believe that the Western uh, tribes had, had taken this as such an act of rebellion. And so they begin to make their case, beginning in verse 21, and it goes all the way uh, to, to the end, verse 20, or to verse 29. And they say, oh, no, 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 by no means. We, we, we didn't build that, the reason you think we did. And we, and we evoke the names of God as a witness. We, we, we didn't do this as a rebellion against God. We did it because we figured, well, we'll have kids and then we'll be gone and they'll grow up and we don't want them to think they're not a part of Israel and we didn't want them to forget the story. So we built an altar. It's only a memorial. It's only a symbol. It's only meant to point to the real altar. That's all that it's meant to be. We were never going to sacrifice anything. We weren't gonna, it's just a picture. That's all we did. We built the model so that they could see it. Well, they explained the reasons. The reasons were heard. And then Phineas says, oh, okay, that, I see that. That makes sense. I'm not sure that was super smart, but it makes sense. I get it. 
And he absolves them and goes back. But I want you to see something. It's kind of a master class case study in conflict resolution. All right? So if you're in the middle of a conflict, you know, you're in the middle of something that needs a resolution, this would be a great chapter for you to pray over, study, read. I mean, listen, what happens is the Eastern tribe, when they're confronted, they own the misunderstanding. They weren't defensive. They weren't seeking to justify themselves or, you know, rationalize. They didn't allow themselves to be offended by the misunderstanding. It is with great humility they sought clarity. Here's how the resolution went. It started because something was done. And then anger arose. That's what happens. That's how conflicts begin. Something's done, anger arises. And then they do the smartest thing in the world, verse 13. They seek clarity by communication. That's usually where we blow it. In fact, let, let me say it this way. If you want a great marriage study, go to Joshua chapter 22. Listening happens. Eastern tribes, had they been defensive, this would have gone badly. Clarity is sought. Listening happens. Then there's sacrifice that's offered. I'll do whatever it takes. Then there's the humble response, the humble explanation. Resolution and understanding. Well, they name the altar at the end of the chapter so that there's no confusion. They call it the altar of witness, just so no one ever confuses this as an altar that's going to take sacrifices. It's an altar that's merely a witness, a witness between us that the Lord is still your God. And in some ways, this was their first test of faithfulness. A test of faithfulness to God, a test of faithfulness to each other. It's this unity of God's people. And it actually ends up being this, this beautiful picture of how to resolve conflict under the eyes of God. Now, if you know your Bible, you know this is kind of an exception of, God, of people. People in general, God's people, we don't do that very well. But there's hope. Now, the next thing that happens is some days pass. People are living in the land for a while. Joshua's getting old, and he knows that his time is near the end, and so he gathers everybody that's a leader for for what I'd call leadership conference. So look at uh, chapter 23, verse 1. After a long time after that, or a long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years. I mean, just so you know, the book of Joshua goes to great lengths to remind us he's old. Take that for what you want, but there's no shame in this. Joshua leads all the way to the end. It's celebrated. Verse 2, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders' heads. He says, I'm old and well advanced in years. Verse 3, and you've seen all that the Lord your God has done and all these things uh, and all the, to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. 
And then he says in verse 4, I allotted you inheritance. In verse 5, the Lord will, uh, put, uh, Lord your God will push them back and drive them out of your sight. Verse 6, therefore, it's another therefore. In light of all that God's done, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Turning aside from it, neither to the right hand nor to the left. I want you to see real quick in verse 6, the standard of obedience is God's Word. This is what God's Word says. It's written in the book of the law of Moses. This is God's Word. Don't turn to one side or the other of it. Stay right in the middle of it. The form of obedience to God's Word, what it looks like, look at verse 7 that you might not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. Don't get mixed up in other religions. Don't get mixed up in worshiping the things that the nations around us used to worship. Don't entertain their gods. Seek nothing from them. Verse 8, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. Cling to God. Cling to him alone. As you've done in the past, as you're doing today, you're to do that always. The standard of obedience is God's word. The form of obedience is, listen, forsake the idols. Don't cling to anything else for your hope in life. Cling to God alone in life. That's how you are obedient to God. And then he gives us some motivation for obedience. Look at verse 9. For the Lord's driven out. Before you, great and strong nations, that's for you. No man's been able to stand before you to this day. Ten, one, one man of you fights, uh, puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised. You, one guy is able to scare a thousand men, a thousand warriors, because God stands behind him. Be careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. This motivation, there's the grace of God and the nurturing of love for God. And then I want you to see from grace and love, he moves to a third motivation for obedience. And that is a holy and healthy fear of God. Look at verse 12. For if you turn back and cling to the remnants of the nations remaining among you and you make marriages with them so that you associate with them and and they with you know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off, uh, perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Take great care. You want to obey God's word. You want to stay right in the middle. Let the grace of God motivate you. Let, a, let, let nurturing love for God motivate you. Take great care because here is the deal. Verse 12 and 13. If you entertain the things of this world in your life, and you let that seek in, you let that corrupt you, you'll be giving back to them what God has fought to give to you. 
And then he says, I want you to know the absolute certainty of God's ways. Look at this with me. Right here at the end. Some of the hardest truths of the Old Testament. The hardest truths of the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, they are still true. Now look at what he says in 14, 15, and 16. And I'll walk you through it so that you see. In verse 14 of chapter 23, he says, Now I'm going to go the way of the earth. Meaning, I'm about to die, Joshua says. And you know, uh, in your hearts and your souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Now, let's stop right there for a second. Here's how he's going to build his argument. God has done every good thing he said he was going to do for you. In fact, he did it solely because of his grace. He did it because he is in covenant with you. He did it because he promised you. He did it because he's faithful to you. He did all these good things. In fact, you can go back to Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, and Moses is rehearsing all the promises and all the blessings that God will give, and, 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 then, and then it sets it up. But then the other half or the other two-thirds of Deuteronomy 28 says, Now, if you decide in the midst of all this blessing God's given you that you are going to live disobediently to him, then here are some other promises, and these promises are not the good that he will do, but the way the text says it, the evil he'll do, the curses that he'll bring upon you. So here's Joshua's argument. God's word is absolutely certain. His promises are absolutely certain. Whether those promises are for your good or whether those promises are for cursing, for, for action against your disobedience. This is the point that he's making. If you believe that God has fulfilled all his promises of good to you, you better believe on the other side. He wasn't playing around when he promised curses for your disobedience. Look at what he says in verse 15. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, So the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. Joshua wants them to obey God. He wants them to live in the midst of the blessing of the land. And he doesn't want them to turn away from God and to get caught up in the world. God's fought for all this. He's given it to you. But if you hand it back over to them, he's not doing it again for you. He's not going to take it again for you. Now, now those are hard words. And thankfully, the book doesn't end there. 
Look with me, verse 1 of chapter 24. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel, gathers them again. Uh, verse 2, he says, this is what the Lord your God says. Now, from verse 2 to verse oh, 12, 13, He's going to rehearse all the things God's done, beginning back in Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham, went to Isaac, went to Jacob, then Moses and Aaron. Then he defeated the Pharaoh with plagues, took you out of the land, brought you across the Jordan into this promised land that you now sit here. Verse 13, here's the summary of it. I gave you, God says, I gave you a land on which you have not labored, and cities you haven't built, and you dwelt in them, you eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. And so Joshua charges the people again, verse 14, Now fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers before uh, served beyond the river in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Verse 15, maybe you have this cross-stitched in your house. We do. And if, it's, uh, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you serve, whether the gods your fathers serve in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you choose. But as for me, Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Verse 16, then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. It's the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples whom we passed. And the Lord drove out all the peoples and the Amorites lived in the land. Therefore, we, will also, uh, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And then verse 19, let this, let this sink in. Here's what Joshua says in reply. Good for you. I knew you had it in you. That's not what he says. Verse 19, look at it. But Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. For he's a holy God, he's a jealous God. He'll not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he'll turn, uh, he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Verse 21, and the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Now let's talk about that for a second. The people of Joshua, I mean, the furthest thing from their minds, the furthest thing from their intentions is to forsake God. God's done great things. He's shown us great signs. He's preserved us to great lengths. We pledge ourselves to the Lord. The problem is the call to faithfulness is answered by the people with a misplaced confidence. They're called to be faithful. They answer, however, that call with a misplaced confidence. And that's why Joshua says to them, no, no. I hear the words coming out of your mouth. But you, you actually, you, you can't serve the Lord. 
He's too holy. He's too jealous. You're too feeble and sinful and weak. It's not going to work. And the answer, I think, comes in verse 21. Look, look at verse 21 again. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. There is a great contrast in Scripture. And the contrast, you can sum it up this way. On the one side is the but we. On the other side is but God. These Israelites lived with this but we kind of response. It was kind of like the, the willpower that you see in a Rocky movie, all right? I love Rocky movies for a while, and then they're all the same. But particularly, you know, he gets, he gets beat by Apollo Creed. That's fine. I'll just work harder and better and get better music in my training. And, and then I'll come and I'll beat Apollo Creed. And then, and, then, and then there's Ivan Drago. Get beat by him. That's fine. I'll grow a big beard, work out in the snow, and then I'll beat him. And, 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 and we see those things and we feel it and we go, yes, Monday morning, I am joining the gym of whatever. You know, we feel inspired. We can do it. Rocky embodies all the things that inspire us at our core. This, but we, we can do it. But the truth is we can't. It's why Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 sums up the most beautiful and glorious truths in all the Bible, and it's not the only place. And after he started in Ephesians 1, it says, listen, you're born in darkness. You're born as an enemy of God. That's who you are. There's not anything you can do about it. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, he says, But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. See, our problem is we come into the world as but we people. You give me a challenge, I'll rise to the challenge. I can do the impossible. Joshua wants him to know, listen, I get it. You're but we people. That's how you were born. That's how you came into this world. But but we people, they never find their way, their way to God. They never do. We have to be but God people. That is our only hope. That's his grace. This is pure grace. It's not like Rocky. It's like, it's like the, the movie Les Mis. 
You know, Jean Valjean, he's, he's in handcuffs uh, from the police, and then he's standing before the friar, this, this bishop, who he's taken advantage of and he's stolen from. And then all of a sudden he experiences grace. See, listen, we know what the script says. The script says, he's guilty. He's stolen from me. He spit on me and, and made the grace I offered him ugly. He's offended me. Arrest him. Take him away. Give him what he deserves. That's how the script goes. But that's not what he hears. And instead, grace comes and it absorbs all the wrongs and it offers more grace. And the scene in the movie is the bishop looks at him after he tells the policeman, oh, no, 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 I gave him those things. In fact, you left without the candlesticks. Take those handcuffs off of him. Jean Valjean stands there and he's stunned and the bishop looks and he says, now, don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Valjean says, Prom promise, what, what, why are you doing this? And the bishop says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With the silver I've bought your soul, I ransomed you from fear and from hatred. And now I give, I give you back to God. There wasn't anything he could do. It's about God. This is what Joshua wants him to know. But God. So he tells him, Joshua in verse 25, he makes a covenant with him. In verse 26, he says, he, Joshua wrote the words in the book of the law of God, took up a large stone, set it up underneath the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And then he said, verse 27, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke. Therefore shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with God. And he sent him away, everyone to his own Inheritance, the stone of witness. We'll talk about this and we'll go home. It's the memorializing, the remembering. Nothing's wrong with it. Nine times in Joshua, in fact, you have stones that are set up as memorials or remembrances. We're not meant to worship the stones. We don't live in the past. They're meant to propel us forward. It's not a reminder of the good old days, but it's strength for you to move ahead in what God is still doing. It's what Todd did with us earlier. You remember when he did this at the beginning of the service where we were to think of the three blessings, you know, the answered prayers. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. And then we sing. I count on one thing. The same God who never fails and will not fail me now and the waiting the same God who is never late and then the response was I lift you high I'll praise you remember that it's okay to mourn the end of a season there's time for everything 
It's the point at the end of the chapter on the burials. You got Joshua buried and Joseph's bones are laid to rest. Eleazar's buried. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to lament the end of one season and feel trepidation about the beginning of a next season. But we remember the faithfulness of God. We, we, we come into the next season with anticipation and expectation. And the point here at the end reminds us that though Abraham's gone and though Isaac is gone and Jacob and Joshua and Joseph's finally laid to rest, God is still God. And he's still faithful and his promises are everlasting. They're not seasonal, they're eternal. Their hope was in nothing other than God. Well, you turn the page from Joshua, you get to Judges, and you realize they had trouble remembering that. We have trouble remembering that. Maybe you've been in a season of doubt for a while. Maybe you've been in a season of forgetting. I invite you, come remember this morning. Let the living word of God refresh you this morning. May the new mercies of God uh, fall on you this morning. May, May his grace shine on you this morning. Maybe you walked in here a a but-we kind of person, and I pray this morning you'd be reminded to walk out of here but God. And that you, with great anticipation, would set your heart and mind before him for whatever he has waiting for you out there. The God who is faithful and never fails goes with you and bids you to trust him this morning. Will you do that? If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, do what only you can do, and that's to open our eyes and our ears. Father, we... Oh, we struggle so often with hard hearts that need to be softened. With wrongs that we feel that we need to forgive, we need to forgive those. Father, there's anger we've got to let go of. There's doubt we need to turn over to you. Father, there are broken hearts that we need you to heal. Because try as we may, in all these areas, we cannot do it. Just like Joshua said, we're not able to do that. But you are. So, Father, we we make no mistake this morning that we, we in any way can... can find the path to you. Father, we need you to come and rescue us this morning. By your grace and by your mercy, that that would fall upon us. 
And Father, we, above all things, we'd leave here this morning, stepping into whatever you have for us as men and women who worship you. Help us to do that, Father. We ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit,